like to speak some tonight on what's called a divine abode and a divine abode means our true home and in the Buddhist tradition there's these different qualities of heart and awareness that are really considered home and the first loving kindness is what I'd like to speak of tonight and maybe start with a very short story Uh, it's a Sufi story about a man so good that the angels ask God to give him the gift of miracles God wisely tells them to ask him if that's really what he wants so the angels visit this good man and offer him first the gift of healing by hands the gift of conversion of souls and lastly the gift of virtue he refuses them all they insist that he choose a gift or they'll choose one for him very well he replies I ask that I may do a great deal of good without ever knowing it so here's how the story ends the angels are perplexed they take counsel and resolve upon the following plan every time the saint's shadow fell behind him it would have the power to cure disease soothe pain and comfort sorrow as he walked behind him his shadow made arid paths green caused withered plants to bloom gave clear water to dried up brooks fresh color to pale children and joy to unhappy men and women the saint simply went about his daily life diffusing virtue as the stars diffuse light and the flowers scent without ever being aware of it the people respecting his humility followed him silently never speaking to him about his miracles soon they even forgot his name and called him the holy shadow so in a way our reflection is how when we come home to who we are that's really what we come home to that quality of goodness that naturally wants to help and heal and not because we want to feel good about a self not because we even need to know what's happening but because we know we belong and are connected to all beings and it's just our nature just to want all beings to be healed to be free from suffering we want it because it's the deepest expression of what we are when we're helping when we're caring we're most at home we're most at home in who we are so there's conditional love and conditional love is where we get a kind of a a taste of of that loving a particular experience of somebody else's goodness or beauty wakes up that kind of ah yeah love unconditional love is when we're inhabiting that presence that is love and that whatever arises is touched by it whatever arises is included in our heart so this is what the Buddha called metta or loving kindness this unconditional loving presence when the Buddha uh, taught about metta he taught about the shadow side how it is that we don't live at home and that in a way a lot of the practices we do are first recognizing okay how come my heart's closed first recognizing oh my heart's closed I'm not feeling that flow and then sensing well what what are the habits of thinking of behaving of moving through life that in some way create that sense of disconnect where we're not feeling open and free one way of understanding our predicament 
how we end up closing down is that we enter a world that's challenging if you say on a personal family level where our naturalness is not always seen or appreciated and to whatever degree we're not met with that unconditional love we kind of fragment and turn on ourselves we think we're not lovable and we take on we kind of create this mask and each of us does this we develop a persona or a mask that will try to get the love that we need to get we try to win the affection the respect and the love by being the person we think others want us to be and it's hard sometimes to tease it out when we're moving through the world how we're kind of caught in some role or persona that's trying to get appreciated how much, how many moments we're filtering our experience through what other people will think about us so we develop this mask I heard a story some years ago about a a little girl who was home with her mom and she was um, painting and she realized that when you combine yellow and blue it makes green and she was completely thrilled and excited so her mom said, well when daddy comes home you can show him and daddy got home that night a busy executive on his cell phone he walks in on his cell phone he's still on his cell phone as he goes into the study and then the kid he's walking around the house on his cell phone and Melissa's tugging on his pants saying daddy, daddy, I've got to show you so he's kind of really trying to close a deal and make something happen he's taking business home and finally he's in his study um, looking at some charts and she's still tugging and he's saying Melissa, what are you doing down there? and she said Daddy, I live down here. So when I heard that, I realized there's so many little ways and then so many more dramatic ways that we get the message that we're not important or not worth listening to are just not so cared about. And then we put on whatever we need to put on to try to get those needs met are to protect ourselves from having to feel that that rawness so it all starts with an experience of severed belonging and then we try to get our meets net but in that process we develop these strategies and this mask we get identified with the mask we get identified with our persona and we forget who we are and there's no way to have that unconditional love that full presence if there's that fear of, oh, they're not going to like me or, oh, I need to do this to make things work out we're not living in that fullness of presence so the first step of waking up to metta is realizing, well, what are my strategies? you know, is it that we're, you know, trying really hard to achieve a lot so that then we can be loved? or is it we're trying really hard not to make mistakes and it's a really big deal I've noticed for a lot of us is the fear of making a mistake of doing something wrong it's like it's not just you make a mistake and it doesn't work out it's like it ties into some deep sense of of not okayness and I've also noticed how so much of what gives us relief and what's fun is is stories about mistakes (laughs) have you noticed that? I got sent this a while back I thought I'd share it with you. This is some church bulletins, real church bulletins. Our next song is Angels We Have Heard Get High. 
<laughs> they are high, you know. Remember in prayer the many who are sick of our church and community. The rosebud on the altar this morning is to announce the birth of David Allen Meltzer, the sin of Reverend and Mrs. Julius Meltzer. <laughs> this being Easter Sunday, we'll ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. <laughs> the ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind. <laughs> they can be seen in the church basement Sunday. I'll just read a couple more because they're fun. The church is glad to have with us today as our guest minister, the Reverend Shirley Green, who has Mrs. Green with him. After the service, we will request that all remain in the sanctuary for the hanging of the Greens. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pastor's on vacation. Massages can be given to the church secretary. <laughs> I'll just read one more. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> anyway, it's helpful to realize the kind of all the mistakes and missteps and so on, because the truth is every one of us is imperfect. We make missteps. We don't do it okay. And I think one of the great teachings uh, was that Zen master who said that to be free is to be without anxiety about imperfection. That can we be who we are and really not be anxious about it? So spiritual life, this freedom of heart, is it's not about becoming something different. It's about embracing this humanness, what we are, with all its imperfections. And it's about learning to see behind the mask. If all we did was say, okay, so What's the presentation or strategy this moment and who's really here? Come back to who's really here in this moment. And if we looked at others and said, okay, so there's a mask, we all are presenting something because we all had some experience of severed belonging, every one of us. But if we looked into the eyes of the other and said, who's really here? That would be the true revolution. See, I think of revolution as waking up out of our conditioning. And our deepest conditioning is to think something's wrong. That's our deepest conditioning. That we get into this clutch and we think something's wrong with what I am or who I am or something's wrong outside. And we believe it and we get caught in it. So the revolution is really to see behind that mask and those beliefs and to widen the circle and see in others really who's there. I was um, working with a woman some, oh gosh, it was a couple of years ago, who came to me and basically told me about her uh, daughter who has disabilities. She's in her 20s. She was in her 20s at that point, early 20s. And she was living independently, but a lot of learning disabilities and emotional suffering. So the mother basically came to me and said, should I send a lot of white light to her? You know, should I keep sending white light to her? Will that do it? And, you know, I, I thought about it and I said, well, you know, if you like, yeah, send, send white light to her. But then I, we started talking and I, I started saying, so this is how you see her, as this daughter with disabilities. You know, she's locked into there's something wrong with my daughter. And we started exploring what would it be if she just meditated each day on who's behind the mask. 
What if she each day saw who's there? I said, who is there? Who is, who is this being? And she, you know, started saying a few things. She said, you know, well, she's, she's light-filled and she's warm and she's funny and she's incredibly kind. So I said, what if that, instead of sending white light to fix a broken person, right, what if you just sensed, ah, light, warm, great humor, you know, sweet. And she did that for a while, because this is really the most powerful prayer. The most powerful prayer, our gift we offer each other is to see who's there. I heard from her weeks later, and she said, I'm not sure exactly what happened, except for we're closer. That's all she said, we're closer. And I love that, because that's metta. So here's uh, Sri Narsargadatta, an Indian teacher, one of, has had a great influence on me. He says, all you need is already within you, only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-condemnation and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself all I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect. Make love of yourself perfect. To genuinely hold this life in our heart, it begins with truly loving what is right here. Now what does it mean to make love of yourself perfect? It doesn't mean that we completely fall in love with our story of ourself. Oh, I'm this kind of person, now that's awesome, and I can do this, and I'm that way, and I'm better. It's not our story of ourself that we're making, that we're falling in love with. It's making love of this life that's here perfect. Absolutely, unconditionally saying yes, with tenderness, to the life that's here. When we can do this, we begin to move through our world and all the other imperfect human vulnerable beings are included because we've really learned to make love of what's right here perfect. Samuel Taylor Coleridge says, the happiness of life is made up of minute fractions the little soon-forgotten charities of a kiss, our smile, a kind look, our heartfelt compliment. The true revolution is to see past the mask, our own, loving the life that's within us, and moving through the world seeing past the mask of others, seeing the goodness that's there. And we have an innate capacity for it, We have an innate capacity to see goodness and to appreciate goodness. This is uh, some responses that children gave when they were asked, what does love mean? And one said, well, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Another said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different, you know that your name is safe in their mouth. 
Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. When you tell someone something bad about yourself and you're scared they won't love you anymore, but then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more. That's love. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> That's my favorite one. So there's a training in loving-kindness and the training is really simple. It's to learn to love this life perfectly by seeing the goodness and opening to what's here. And it helps sometimes to send a message of care inwardly. And then it's to move through our world exactly the same way and see who's here and send a message of care. And the message can be a prayer and it can be um, an action and it can be touch. And I want to end tonight this the speaking part with a story I heard about the power of sending metta with our touch because it really uh, moved me and this was uh, Rachel Naomi Remen describes having these workshops and she'd offer them to cancer patients and she said, you know, when you're a cancer patient you can feel really vulnerable because people are always trying to help you so she'd have them get into pairs and they would take turns touching each other and sending love to each other But then she had some physicians do the same thing at a workshop. And one doctor described his experience. And he was paired with this very intimidating woman, this brilliant surgeon who everybody admired, but she kept a distance from others. They get together in this pair, and he's kind of unsure about how to do it, you know, because she's here she is, she's about to touch him, and he doesn't know how real to get. So here's what he says. He said, I thought I'd play it safe, but after Jane told me about a pain she usually has in her back, I decided to take a chance, and I told her about my divorce, how hard it's for me to to trust women. She asked where I felt this pain, and I couldn't actually say it, so I just touched my heart. She nodded. Then I lay down on the rug and closed my eyes, and she sat next to me for a little while without touching me. I remember thinking that she probably was not going to touch me, and suddenly I felt like crying. I was so surprised I hadn't cried through the whole thing, but I didn't. And then Jane put the palm of her hand on my chest. I was really astonished by how warm her hand was and how gentle and tenderly she touched me. A little at a time the warmth of her hand seemed to penetrate my chest and surround my heart. I had a sort of strange experience. For a while there it seemed to me as if she was holding my heart in her hand rather than just touching my chest. That's when I felt the strength in her hand, how rock-steady she was. And in a funny way, I could feel that she was really there, really there for my pain. That's when I started to cry. He turned to her and said, I had no idea who you were. Your patients are lucky. And found she was in tears herself. In a halting voice, she began to talk about how she felt she had lost so much through medical training, her softness, her gentleness, her warmth about how there was no approval for these things in the masculine world of medicine and so in an effort to succeed as a physician she had cut them off. This exercise put her in touch with the pain of this. She had thought these parts of herself had been lost and it meant a great deal to her to be seen and valued in this way. It became clear to every physician in the room that Jane was not just talking about herself or even about the other women doctors, she was speaking for all physicians who had been trained to deny their wholeness in the mistaken belief that this would enable them to be of service to others. 
but she was really talking about all of us. Every one of us in some way gets afraid to really let ourselves touch others. Whether it's physically or emotionally, we forget the power of when we're in our heart sending that love, whether it's through our physical touch, our prayer, or an action. The incredible power of really being in our hearts and feeling caring and expressing it is something that we know about in our minds but on a daily level are too shy, are too caught, are too distracted, are too afraid to really do. So the invitation of the solstice, really the invitation of the days when it's getting so little light out, is to remember that inner light that really wants to love without holding back but forgets to try. We forget to try. Nikki Giovanni says, and if ever I touched a life, I hope that life knows that I know that touching was and still is and always will be the true revolution. So just take a moment to close your eyes. And just gently for this few moments here, the metta towards this heart and life that's here, you might just ask the question, what does it really mean to love this life, to really love this life perfectly? Just in this moment, what does that mean? Can we forgive and arrive in this moment in a way that truly cherishes this life right here. And in that presence can we sense that edgelessness of heart that really does hold this whole life with tenderness. with care. Namaste. Now we're going to invite um, the children in, yeah. And welcome to you all. Welcome, welcome. So glad to have you. Hey. <laughs> Cindy, if you'll come on up, I'm gonna, we're going to move into our story in just a few moments. So many of you that have been here before know Cindy, our community storyteller, and is here to enchant us with a story. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Actually, I wanted to start tonight just by saying that it means a lot to me to be able to come back and tell a story here at the solstice. And when I was thinking about that, I thought... But that, in a way, is what the whole solstice is about. It's about waiting for the light to come back and what that means to all of us. And most of the solstice stories are about how do we get the light to come back. So this is the Japanese solstice story. 
one of the things that's unusual about this story is that the sun is a goddess instead of a god. She lives in this beautiful palace of the sun. Her name is Ama. So she lives in the palace of the sun, and she has a certain kind of energy that she brings to the world, and it's really a rhythmic energy. It's the energy of the sun. It's like the energy of the heartbeat. It's like... You can almost hear her loom clicking, you know? It's very rhythmic. It's very regular. You can count on it. It's like if everybody were to just go like this with me while I do this. Just... That's Amma's energy. She's very steady, and she's very gentle, and she's very loving. But there's another energy in the world as well, and that's her consort. That's like her husband, and he is the god of the storm. So you can imagine that they, they have a little bit of trouble with each other sometimes because his energy is almost exactly opposite. It's equally powerful, but it's like opposite of her energy. It's sudden. It comes when you don't expect it. And I usually have a, something that... It's like the rain, the lightning. It comes piercing through. It's a shock. A lot of times it brings insight, but it also causes a lot of problems, causes a lot of turmoil, a lot of trouble. People get uncomfortable. She gets uncomfortable with it, really, because she's very regular. And so she hears that he's coming. He's visiting the Palace of the Sun. He's coming for a reason, because he has decided that he wants to understand what the true source of all life is, what their real parent is, the source of all energy, his and hers, and he's going to journey deep into the darkest regions to find this source, their mother. And he's scared. And he's really coming, basically, to get pumped up and energetic from her. He wants to feel that she respects him and loves him and cares about him. And that's going to give him the courage that he needs. But she hears he's coming, and she's thinking, oh, you know, she's got a lot to do, and he's always causing a lot of problems. His energy is really wild. And she's hoping that, you know, this can be a calm visit. And she understands what he's doing, and she thinks it's really nice. She's not, it's not the kind of thing she would do, you know. I mean, she's not really interested in going down there. She's interested in that steady rhythm, which he's always interrupting. And she admits that when he interrupts, it's, it can be exciting, right? But... It's still not that comfortable for her. So when he comes, she tries to make him comfortable, and she tries to reassure him that she has a lot of respect for what he's doing. You know, and the more she tells him this in her you know, very soothing way, the more frustrated he gets, because he doesn't feel like she really respects him. And he, does, and he starts to get really irritated by all this comforting stuff, you know, and he starts to feel really like he wants to shock her into knowing how serious this mission is that he's on. And so, in fact, he rides into the Palace of the Sun on what has been come to be called a nightmare. This horse with many legs, not just for, you know, dripping weird things. Everything's scary, you know, just sort of picture in your mind a scary horse with skulls and rain and lightning flashing out of its eyes. He comes rushing through the palace. Well, she's spinning the light, you know, and weaving and in comes this wild horse and wrecks everything in the past. I mean, this is not a small thing. This is completely out of control, more than he's ever been. She's terrified. 
and the whole palace is wrecked, is destroyed. She sees things flying off, you know, the, the sunbeams are breaking in front of her, nothing is the way it's supposed to be. She becomes completely and utterly terrified, and she runs to the farthest place in the universe, and it's a cave, and she goes deep inside the cave, and she pulls a huge stone over the front of the cave. Now, she is the sun, so she's okay in there, right? I mean, she's come in there with all of her light. And it's like, in a way, when we meditate, you know, you go deep inside, you bring your light in, and you're okay there. But nobody else is okay out here because she's gone. I mean, not that that happens when we meditate, but you know what I'm saying. It's like you could sit there, right? And the dishes and whatever, all her regular chores are not happening out here. It's getting colder and colder. The trees are freezing. They're dropping their leaves. So this is like the winter has come. And this is the first winter. And the people are hungry, and the people are scared, and they're frightened. And he sees what's happened, and he's feeling really guilty. Now, when he goes down into the underworld to seek the source of all energy, he actually is doing it not to be brave and bold and do this great thing, but because he feels really upset at what he did. He's hopeless, and he's afraid. He's really afraid now. And so around this cave, once they find the cave, they all gather, all the demigods and goddesses gather, and the people. And the first thing that happens is they see that there is an evergreen tree there. So an evergreen tree has not forgotten to be green, even though in this dark and cold time. And it makes them feel a little bit better to see this beautiful tree. And they all hang jewels on it and mirrors. And they bring candles. And this light that's reflecting on the tree reminds them of the light that they're missing. And it makes them sad, but it also makes them determined to find a way to get her back. There's another character who is often almost left out of the story, it seems to me. And this is her younger sister. She isn't the queen of the sun. She doesn't make the world green and beautiful, but she has the power. She almost has some of his power. She has the power of the dance and of energy. And she's standing around with everybody, looking at the tree, and she's feeling a little bored and a little tired of it all and, a li and feeling like, you know, what are we going to do here? We've called her. She won't come. She says she's never coming out again. Truthfully, in that cave, I think she had almost forgotten who she was. She had really been so frightened that it's as if she didn't know her own face anymore. And she didn't know what she was meant to do for the people. She forgot about bringing the light out. And her sister is not feeling... She's just not so caught in the grief as she is frustrated and bored and wanting something to happen. She is a lot like he is, but she's not angry so much as she's got this energy. And I think this is such a powerful piece of the story because it's this energy, it's this desire that she feels that makes her do this very impulsive thing, which is to jump up on this huge Japanese drum and start to dance. And she doesn't just dance a kind of spiritual dance. She dances a body, wild, crazy, impulsive, out-of-control dance on this drum. It's not angry, but it's very wild. She's throwing her scarves off, and she's just 
wild. And, and all the demigods and all the people in their candlelight are watching her. And it's funny. And it's wonderful. And they start laughing. And they're laughing really loud. And they're, you know, punching. Look at what she just did. And they're all just having this great time. And Amma in the cave hears them. And she's thinking, well, I've never heard my people sound like that before. I wonder what's going on out there. And so she gets curious. It's not, she's not upset that this is happening, but she's really curious because up until then there's been nothing but sadness and tears. And so she goes to the edge of the cave and she pushes on the boulder. And when she pushes on it, some of her light comes out. And when the light comes out, the tree really lights up. And this just gives her younger sister even more energy. And she is completely wild, dancing up a storm. <laughs> and Amma comes out. And she sees her. And behind her sister, she sees the mirrors in the tree and her own light reflected back at her. And she remembers who she is. She goes home. It's, it fits very much with what Tara was saying. She remembers who she is, and she comes back. And when Zusu, who's the, who's the consort husband, hears about it, he knows that his journey will be successful and that he will be able to return. Thank you. So the sun will come back. So as um, we're settling, just to, for many of you that have been past years, you've uh, met Shauna. Shauna Simon is our resident musician and will lead us in some chanting. And the first chant um, we're going to sing is a traditional Buddhist mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum. If you have chants to each, you'll see those syllables. And the words mean the jewel is in the lotus. And the alive, real spirit of the chant is this understanding that as we wake up, as we wake up, we wake up to the gem of compassion. Om Mani Padme Hum.
the earth is our mother, we must take care of her. This is a Hopi chant. Please sing along. The earth is our mother. We must take care of her. The earth is our mother. We must take care of her. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. Her sacred ground we walk upon. With every step we take, her sacred ground we walk upon. With every step we take. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. The earth is our mother. She will take care of us. The earth is our mother. She will take care of us. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. I will be gentle with myself. I will love myself. I am a child of the universe, being born each moment. I will be gentle with myself, I will love myself. I am a child of the universe, being born each moment. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. The earth is our mother, she will take care of us. Earth is our mother, she will take care of us. The earth is our mother, we must take care of her. The earth is our mother, we must take care of her. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yana, Yana. Hey, Yana, ho, Yana, hey, Yan, Yan. 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 So in a few moments, we're going to begin our solstice candle ceremony. And really the spirit of this is, as we've been speaking this night, of really seeing and sensing and cherishing the light that's within us and within each other and bringing that out. And so in this passing the light ceremony, you should each have a candle. Does anyone not have a candle? Can you raise your hand? Yeah, so we need some more candles in this area. We're going to invite Jonathan to come up. As we're lighting the candles, we'll have the flute playing. So we're going to go into silence.
So feeling your heart and coming into that silence that senses your prayer, that you can honor the light within, honor the light within all beings, be part of that which spreads the light. And we'll invite our lights, light people to come up now and begin to dip in. come standing up. And as, as we chant, just sending our, our love to the world to heal the world. Love to all. 
with the metta of may the long time sun shine upon you.
Solstice blessings, holiday blessings, may all be peaceful, may all be happy, may all be in love. Namaste. And thank you for being here. You can blow out your candles whenever you want, but please stay around, enjoy each other, enjoy the treats that are here, um, and have a great evening. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.